to Fans Labyrinth, the show where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre flicks. My name is Joseph, and I'm here with my co-host, Lydia. And we're also here for the first time ever with a guest. Yay! Hello, guest. Hey, I'm Jason. <laughs> Hooray. I'm the one who uh, designed the uh, the podcast uh, what Thum- was it, logo. The, the, yeah, the thumbnail. The thumbnail. The Thumbnail, yeah, that's the he, one. He made that's our album one. cover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the album cover. Um, New single drops next week. Yeah, Jason's a mutual friend of ours, so mm-hmm. seemed like an appropriate first first guest. Mm-hmm. I have known Jason, I have known you for 15 years, Jason. Yeah, it's been quite a long time. Yeah. You probably haven't been sick of me yet. I oh. Well, I mean, <laughs> who says I'm not? No. I'm kidding. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, and I think we're probably going to do this for most guest episodes. It was your recommendation. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I had chosen the movie The Sunset Limited, which I actually found a long time ago back when I was in college. Uh, when I was torrenting movies and all that, what? I used Illegal. to... Uh, what is this you speak of? Right? Totally. Um, I had just grabbed all of the most recent ones, and one of them just happened to be The Sunset Limited. And as I was watching it, I was just so intrigued by it that I was like, you know what? Let's just... I stayed up all night watching it, so... <laughs> yeah. And it does have that vibe of, like, at the end of it. Well, we'll we'll get into it yes. when we get to that. Before that, though, mm-hmm. we're going to do our usual talking about what we've been watching, what we're into, that kind of stuff. And I thought it might be cool, since we all just discovered 20 seconds ago, that we all watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, to start with that one. Yep. Yeah. What do you think, Lydia? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I, lo- I love, um, I love, like, that kind of period drama, like, anything in, like, the... 50s, 60s, 70s kind of era. I just find it aesthetically very pleasing, so I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Anya Taylor-Joy is just excellent. Like, I've never been disappointed with her performance in anything. She really seems to grasp onto her characters well. Overall, I really I had a lot of fun with it. It was really interesting. I didn't think a movie about chess would, like, grab me, or a TV show about chess would grab me as much as it did. So that was surprising. Also fun to see the grown-up kid from Love Actually. <laughs> yeah, that was... Oh my god. Yeah, that was wild. A little disquieting that I found him as attractive as he was while he's walking around dressed up like fucking Crocodile Dundee. And I'm still like, <laughs> yes, this is kind of... Sure. Like, this is working for me. And and it's just like this, like, chess nerd dressed up like a, like, rebel outback guy. It's yeah, like, he was also Jojen Reed from... Game of Thrones, and so that's yeah. what I knew him from because yeah. I never watched uh, Love Actually. You've never seen Love but, Actually? Uh, no, I know. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> How have you never seen Love oh. Actually? Sorry, no, we need to pause on this. How have you never seen Love Actually? <laughs> I of course know what it is, but I just like I've seen clips of it, and I'm just like, this seems 
like shit. It's okay. <laughs> fuck you. It's tremendous. There, there are some like storylines that are less intriguing than others, but it's tremendous. And you should watch it this year for Christmas. Mm-hmm. That'll definitely happen. Like, why do you why do you recommend things to me and get mad when I don't watch them, but I recommend things to you and you get to shit on it immediately without even trying? Oh my god. Not even trying. Oh it's a fucking Christmas movie. Like, get some Holly Jolly in you. It's fucking November. Okay, this isn't a recommendation year. out of nowhere. Obviously, I've known about the movie for like a million years. Yeah. It's one I purposely avoided. Oh my god. I, I so see it come on every season. And I always catch it like halfway through too. Like I'm always like in the living room, and it's always on, and I'm like, well, I've already seen this scene. And then it's like, I rewatches it again on another channel. It's like, oh, okay, so I've now seen this scene three times in the same season, <laughs> but I actually haven't watched it. It's just I mean, I have watched it from beginning to end once, but then, like, every other time I've watched it, I always caught it, like, halfway through. See, Joseph here is the forever contrarian, so if too oh many people like something, it must be shit. <laughs> oh, my, stop it. <sighs> okay. This episode is going to be a scary thing. Yeah. I also liked it. Um, obviously, I love chess. Um, it was the thing that I was really obsessed with as a kid. I'm now, like, into the YouTube world of chess because of this stupid show. <laughs> and, yeah, it was a beautiful blend of aesthetics. And one thing I found really, really cool about it is that they... So... As the show goes on, she's obviously getting better and better at chess. And they took a game played in 1994, 1997 for one of the ultimate games she plays. And to show her how, like, just how great she is, they got grandmasters and, uh, and, a com- and computer analysis to take that game. And when she adjourns, she leaves the table for that game in the show. And she comes back. She plays a move that's better than what the grandmasters had played. Mm. And and they redesigned the game to show her like her gameplay in the game itself as better than any. Ah, anyone that's interesting. I didn't that know time. that. That's a cool fact. So it was it was it was really cool how they brought in like and they really cared about it, which I think is so important for stuff like this. Like if you're gonna do a cooking show, make sure the cooking makes sense. If you're gonna do a mm-hmm. chess show, then make sure you care about the actual thing you're you're portraying. Yeah, when you have something mm-hmm. that's so like particular and meticulous and it, and it is truly a skill that like you have to understand to a certain level like there is a growth there that it's important to get it right. Yeah. Especially just for her narrative structure, her getting better and better as you said. Mm-hmm. And she also had to overcome all of those addictions she also had too where like she grew up as an orphan. Like mm-hmm. well not grew up as an orphan, she became an orphan. And then uh, with her time there, she that's where she learned to play. Mm-hmm. And then when she got out, when, you know, there was with the family and all that, she wasn't brought into a good family structure. And then dealing with like alcohol and substance abuse from the pills and all that, she had to deal with that all her life. And then with all of the, you know, heartache, turmoil, all of that throughout the whole series, she still, her number one focus was still chess, which was pretty impressive. Like that's her thing even though you there are some times where you think she's gonna fall off of chess she comes right back into it and she comes better and better from there well i think that's like as a plot device for something like this it makes it makes sense it didn't feel um overused or or ridiculous by any means but that kind of like depression and substance abuse and stuff it's is like pretty common with like prodigy kids like kids who are at genius levels and aren't getting 
the right support systems, the right stim- uh, stimuli, they aren't being challenged in the right ways. Like that, those kinds of results happen like relatively often, statistically speaking. So it made sense to have that in there. And you see it, you see it a lot in like chess masters for whatever reason. Like they talk about it even in the show that there's just something about that con- like consistent pressure and competitive nature and academia, mm-hmm. like those three things turn into sort of a perfect storm that lead to like the need to shut your brain off in some way. What I think was really mm-hmm. truly interesting was that like for a while, the drugs became a crutch for her to be able to understand how to play, to be able to be better. She felt sure. she needed the the like sedatives or whatever it was that she was addicted to. And then she got to a tipping point where it just ruined her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also, I think we, yeah, the, the scene where she goes to, I'm forgetting his name in the, in the show, but jo, the person who plays Jojen Reed from Game of Thrones, his apartment. Oh, Benny Watts. Benny Watts, mm-hmm. yeah. And she, so he's a very high level chess player and he, uh, she goes to his apartment and it's interesting that, you know, even with his success, he can barely afford an apartment in New York City and his life is very trimmed down to just being like, what he needs to to play chess and that's it mm-hmm. and i think that mm-hmm. is quite so, true to academic reality <laughs> well so he does kind of explain that though because earlier in the series when she first meets him he talks about how he doesn't do the like um tournaments that pay out in cash so the mm-hmm. tournaments she starts out playing are all cash prize tournaments to get her level increased. But were he to lose those like cash prize tournaments, it could damage his level. And then he wouldn't be able to compete yeah. in the championship tournaments that he can win titles and notoriety. Yeah, he's for. totally dedicated to the game. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. so that's the main reason why he just can't bankroll himself the way that she's been able to. Yep. And then she meets Harry Beltic, which was one of her first wins. Dudley. In the series. Dudley Dursley. Dudley from Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's also in The Devil All the Time, which we watched recently. Like he's in everything these days. It's crazy. Yeah. He kind of, like, he's so still he's... weird looking, but he's kind of hot now. I mean, he's English hot, but he's hot. Yeah. He played a critical role in that in that show where, like, he was her first big win. And then he comes back later to, like kind of be like maybe a hopeful influence on her to you know get her back into the game by spending time with her like living with her for a little bit and then teaching her the extra moves and then saying hey we're gonna go after the big bad guy you know this is this is how we're gonna do it so i thought it was really cool i mean yes really well really well done yes i agree but like the first time you see harry baltic come back into her life and like teach her chess and try and get her back into the game feels like moderately disingenuous because the reality is he was just completely in love with her because she beat him and he like spent all his university money or college money or whatever getting his teeth fixed so he could impress her and he like tried to make her got the new car tried to make her fall in love with him and it's like Mm -hmm. like it, it i understand what you're saying and i do agree he had like a somewhat positive influence on her and especially when he comes back in the end to work with benny to work with mike and all of these people that she met along the way to help her achieve like the ultimate goal i agree but his initial reasonings for being there for trying to be in her life 
were not because he was genuinely interested in in helping her achieve her goals or further her career in chess. It was because he was in love with her and was trying to make Mm -hmm. that happen. So that's like, I don't know. I don't love, I don't love those storylines. And they did that a lot in this. And like, I don't know. I mean, you can't, I, I get it. You can't have something like this without. What, sorry, what aspect of the storyline don't you like? I just, I tend to, not, I don't like those storylines where it's like the only reason somebody would ever want to help you is because they, like, especially somebody of the opposite sex would ever want to help you is because they want to mm. get in your pants. Um, and like, they kind of just kept doing that constantly. Like you see it with um, Harry Baltic. You see something like that that's more confusing, more nuanced with Towns. And then Benny, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be like a genuine mentor relationship, friendship. They're going to work together. It's going to be great. And then the same thing just kind of happened again anyway. And it's like, okay, I guess. But, you know, you could have done something different and more interesting and more nuanced here than that. So I, I kind of liked well, when I mean, Jolene they're, came they're, back they're, in. All three of them are quite different, but yeah. They are I, all I different. I see what you're saying, but that they the, all have the tension. Yeah, the inherent structure of them is not, though. That's the thing. All three of them are very different characters and their motivations are different at different points, but they have the same kind of narrative structure. It's like they're in awe of her and they're in love with her and they're just trying to be in her like gravity pull, but they want her in some way. So it's like they're not genuinely trying to be there for her. And that other than Scheibel, there was no man in her life at any point that just cared about her as a person. So, I mean, I kind of liked when I, I would have liked to see a little bit more with Jolene when they brought her in because their relationship seemed like genuine. It seemed truly like familial. And that was almost more interesting. Yeah, No, you have a point there with the men in her life not being like good role models, like even her like adopted father and <laughs> yeah, then all the players she played against. And then even like the guy who took her to Russia was like, they were all there for other reasons, not for her just to be, you know, not there for support. I think the only supportive character was her mother. <laughs> I mean, and I'm, I'm actually very glad that they didn't choose her to be like some just, you know, in it for the money kind of thing. I'm glad they came to like that arrangement because it'd been very disappointing. It was like the entire show was just everyone out to get her. I'm glad that there was at least one influence besides Scheibel and, uh, Jolene that were like good for her but I mean her her yeah. mother also turned her into an alcoholic but you know so there's that yeah. but and but like supported her though but, but like <laughs> supported her aspects of going to be a chess champion and all that her mother supported her yes I agree with that like her mother was seemed at least at most times interested in her career and wanted her to talk about it and just shut her down and that was cool but like her mom was also a impoverished, raging alcoholic who'd been left by her husband and was kind of at least initially in it for the money, for sure. Like, the whole reason she mm-hmm. got invested in her career was because she was making money at these tournaments and could make even more. Like, there's an entire scene of her being like, maybe you give me 10% as your manager. And it's like they came to an arrangement that satisfied both of them and gave both of them what they wanted. But I don't think either of them got anything positive or, or, or good out of it. I mean, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy's character becomes a raging alcoholic who really didn't get true affection from anyone. And her mother dies from hepatitis. So it's like... Mm-hmm. 
I, I think you have a very cynical view. I think because the think trajectory of the show is very positive. I agree that the trajectory the of the show is very positive at the end. But I do think that she got unfortunately and probably unfairly wrapped up in a lot of toxic relationships because of being so young and put in an orphanage that was fraught with toxic relationships Some, yeah. with authority figures and adults. She didn't really have a great idea of how to navigate the world to begin with. And I don't think that that's untrue. I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, receiving positive things from at least partially toxic relationships. I think we navigate those every day. There are people in your life that aren't excellent for you, but they're good for you in some way. You get something out of it. What I think that's exactly what the relationship... If you think of the three, the three chess guys she's with, all of Towns, Benny, and Beltic are at moments very much help her and at yeah. moments use her. And I think that's very true to life. I'm not disagreeing with you. I don't think anyone is. I think doing it three times in a row throughout the course of a 10 episode show was a little heavy handed for me in that particular type. But they're all very I mean, one of the characters is gay, for God's sakes. Like, it's not the same relationship. I know it's not the same relationship, but it's still like, I'm not saying it is a bad thing. I am saying having three male main male characters in a show surrounded uh, like surrounding a female main character and each one of them is using her in some way related to affection or sex to gain some kind of fulfillment is a little much in a 10 episode arc like i liked all of those characters it just would have been nice if they didn't all surround some kind of sexual sexuality and like affection and it was at least in some way a mentorship or a, a true friendship, and none of them really felt like that until the end, until the very end. The last episode, you kind of get some fulfillment out of it, but I don't know. So that that felt frustrating to me. I liked the show overall. I just think it's like weird when every male character she interacts with is just like hopelessly fucking in love with her. It's like, oh my god, she's smart and she's beautiful. Like, okay, cool. Certainly. Yes, her none of her relationships... She's always on edge. She's always, you know, the orphan because her, none mm-hmm. of her relationships are stable. And that's definitely a theme of the show. Yeah, this okay, is... Okay, why don't we <laughs> give Turning Jason into some a Queen's uh-huh. Gambit podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so uh, I watched quite a few things recently. Actually, I had the day off today, so I just caught up on a lot of anime that I've been missing out on. Oh, um, nice. I watched. Yes, I watched. Is it wrong to pick up Girls in the Dungeon season three? No, no, we're not talking about that. <laughs> I actually, you can't I actually censor really like our that guests. One. Um, no, Jason, <laughs> this is not how you um, want to be. I known. also started a new one called uh, Jujutsu Kaisen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Had some. There's this one clip that people keep showing that looks terrible. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Very different anime. It kind of reminds me a little bit of. Um, a little bit of Demon Slayer, but not as like flashy. But also, there's like a lot mm-hmm. to it. Like, it adds more comical bits to it. Like, I don't know. It's it's interesting so far. I can't. I'm only on season or an episode five, I think today. So I'll probably finish off the things only up to six six episodes right now. So I'll probably just watch the rest of them later. Um, I also watched a terrible show on Netflix called Blood of Zeus. Oh yeah, what was that like? Well, terrible. Apparently. Oh god. Okay, it was. Essentially, like, Greek mythology, because, you know, with Zeus and all that, yada, yada, yada. But it was, like, trying to be... It's trying to claim to be anime, but it's it's an adult cartoon yeah. at the at the very best. Well, it was made by the people who made Castlevania, Yeah, right? but 
the one thing I had a, I had a big problem with is just the sound design. Like you'll you'll have really oh, complicated okay. fight scenes and very limited amount of like action, like punching and all of that. Like it's very basic in sound design, and you're sitting here like, well, it doesn't feel like an action sequence because you have this like this mm. subtle kind of music in the background. Like you know you have like the operatic singers and you have all like the instruments and all that, and it's all like, oh, this is a big fight scene. But then you hear like, it's like very very basic in other sounds. I'm like, this isn't feel like an action sequence at all and that's 90 percent of the whole show it's just the same thing and then it loosely bases off the like the the titans in in greek mythology are now called giants yeah. and then they're all the giants are have like their different forms like there's like the tornado guy is literally a guy with a tornado in his chest uh there's the cyclops um but Reminds me of like Captain Planet or whatever that was. Yeah, called. but these 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 monsters look more like demons. Like they're not like normal looking mm. Titan monster things. Like they look like they're just giant demons, and it's like it it just throws you off. And then the main villain is a seraphim, but he's like there's a whole like brother thing with the main character, and it's a whole like brother relation with the main character. And then there's just it just goes off. And I watched the whole thing just while I was working, just as background noise and. I could, again, a lot of the sound design just threw me off the whole thing. I'm like, this isn't good. <laughs> this isn't good at all. This is such a stupid... No. Okay, no. I already started, so I'm going to say my stupid segue, and we're just going to drop it. Go for it. <laughs> but Seraphim, I didn't... I, I, th- that's like a type of angel, right? Yeah. Was where the word I think it's from. like half angel. But, uh, yeah. Well, so that's the thing, half I angel. I thought that's what a Nephilim was. That's the thing. So that Nephilim is half angel, right? And that reminded me of Shadowhunters because yes. that's what they are, right? Yeah, Nephilim. They're Nephilim. And okay, I was just gonna say I like in, in Shadowhunters or or in the City of Bones or whatever that series is called Mortal Instruments. Yeah, that's um, the one. Is I liked how they had this. So there's like angel blood, demon blood, and human blood, and depending on which mixture you had, you're a different being. And I just thought that was a cool way of doing it. So like fairies are half demon, half angel. And I'm like, yeah, that's fucking sick. So they have to tell the truth, but they're tricky as fuck because they like are yeah. totally whimsical. <laughs> yeah, they can't called, like, outright chaotic. lie, but they can omit and they can twist and they can do those. Yeah, and they things. want to, like they're very yeah. like chaotic types. So I just thought there's some very cool like little principles there. You know, no no comment on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I also watched another anime called Erased uh, recently. That was yeah. that was a pretty good one. I finished that one recently. Very different. Very different. I kind of predicted the ending a lot. Like, I predicted the ending from, like, yeah. halfway through it. I'm like, yeah, I can see where this is kind of going. Yeah. I mean, it's an anime that if you can if you can guess the ending too early, it does feel a little, you know, paint by mm-hmm. numbers. But. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, if you take, like, even look at, like, the subtle anime tropes and everything, it's like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see where this is going to go to right now. Um, but that was pretty good. I think really well animated, to be honest. I really like the animation design of it. Yep. Yeah. There's when I talk to people about this, there's always this one comment I wanted to make. Oh, it's that at the very beginning, he he's depressed about just having an unfulfilling life so far. Mm-hmm. And then I just find it crazy that the premise becomes he's like, so I'm going to solve a murder from when I was like <laughs> seven years old. Yeah. As the way to like fulfill my d- deep sadness, my depression. I'm like, one, if I hide that premise, the show's pretty good. But for some reason, it really stuck with me that that's what it's trying to do. And I'm like, 
that's stupid. <laughs> like, I mean, that's kind of Batman. Yeah, he's also yeah, he's also what True. like eleven or something like that, or like Which ten. I also and it's just like, hey, yeah, this guy's gonna really stop a murder, and like he, I mean, as a ten year old, you're not gonna pick up on clues. But then again, he is in, I guess, an older person, like reliving himself as a younger person. So I guess he could kind of yeah, see the clues then. But yeah, it's a coolish premise, mm-hmm. and it, and it's done well. So yeah, yeah a good show. All right, but what? I, yeah. So Lydia, did you want to go with the uh, jump in? Yeah, with what? It's not going to be anime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then okay. So we're moving on. <laughs> um. So I just I just started watching a an old YouTube series called Marble Hornets. Okay. Um, when I say YouTube series, I don't mean like YouTube Premium. It's just like a series of videos, but. It came out in, like, I think 2010 or 2009. Um, but it, it's sort of, like, it's Slender Man. Like, it's it's the beginnings of what oh, okay. became Slender Man, basically. Oh, interesting. And it's interesting. all, like, found footage mixed with this one guy investigating what's going on. Um, but basically, like, a group of friends uh, who I think they're, like, university or college students um, are making, like, a student film. Uh, mm-hmm. And the guy making the student film, like the director, starts seeing someone in the shots, seeing a person in the background of some of the shots and starts getting followed and stuff. So he cuts production on this film. So one of the guys who is his friend who was starring in it is trying to figure out why the production was cut. So he asks the director to give him the tapes so he can review them and stuff. And he keeps begging for them. So finally the guy who directed it gives him the tapes and he, and then the guy who directed it just bails. He disappears. Okay. This is like some kind of ring like premise. Yeah. So the friend starts going through the old video footage and he sees the guy standing in the background and it's just this guy in a business suit and he's far enough away that you can't really see his face but it looks like he doesn't have a face he's really tall um and he starts noticing that there's like audio discrepancies and um video tearing and stuff in all of these tapes when this like person is nearby oh okay and then the investigation goes from there so i haven't finished the whole series because i think the whole series is like 14 hours or something total um and the videos are all like two to like 10 minutes long Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's really good though. Like there have been a few. Is it all chronological, or is it kind of like a mixed bag, like so, series? Because it's showing you footage from the tapes from when they were originally making the student film, but also footage that this guy is shooting in the process of his investigation. It kind of goes back and forth between timelines, but you can find playlists where it shows all of the videos in chronological order as they were released. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah. So you'll see, you'll see it in the order that the guy investigating it is seeing everything, so including, like, the old tapes. So he'll put in a little notation, like, I found this on the tapes today, and then he'll show the clip, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or I was in this place today, and then he'll show a clip from what he recorded. I investigated this abandoned building, and he'll show the video that he recorded. Um, but what's interesting and what m- made me really get into it, because a friend of mine, a friend of mine and Jason showed it to me, when they released this, the people who created it put so much fucking love, care and effort into this 
they had multiple Twitter accounts going talking about this as though they were the actual characters or people watching like the investigation and throwing in tips and stuff. But there was also this this one Twitter account and secondary sort of YouTube account posting videos of their own where they're watching and sort of stalking the guy who is investigating what happened during the student film. Jeez. Okay. Wow. So you get like, so there's the playlist that we were watching includes those clips as well of the guy who's like stalking the investigator. Um, so you'll watch like six clips in a row of the investigation and of the student film. And then you'll get this weird, creepy, sort of clip in the middle that'll just be like some kind of a clue with like weird ambiance and like weird video footage or like video footage of somebody watching him as he's investigating stuff like that. So it's really creepy. It's it's like a really interesting well-marketed found footage like horror series. Hmm. It reminded me a lot of the way the Blair Witch Project from 99 was originally marketed. They did this mm-hmm. whole huge online guerrilla marketing campaign that was like very avant-garde for the time period and set up Blair Witch to look like it was a real investigation, a real documentary and a real missing persons. But it's really creepy, especially for being so far removed from Slenderman now in 2020, like it's a decade later. It's cool to see like the origins of it and see something new to me that is genuinely scary. For sure. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty cool. All right, I wanted to I wanted to jump in on something that sort of makes sense to what you were talking about. Um because it's also a, U- a YouTube thing. Ooh. So I was watching a stream of some uh, uh someone, um Julia from Drawfee, <laughs> play this game called The Beginner's Guide. Have you ever heard of this, Jason? No. Never have. So, okay. Do either of you know the Stanley Parable? Mm, sounds familiar no. it's, it, it's a it's a vaguely pop it's a pretty popular game on steam indie sort of small like 15 dollar puzzle game which is kind of philosophical you're like in an office space and and you make sort of choices about like where your life is gonna go and and it's like existential puzzle game so the creator of that put this out with this kind of found footage type mm. thing that you're talking about lydia which is so the beginner's guide is about that's creator of Stanley Parable talking to their friend who you don't know who they are, um, codenamed Coda, and playing through Coda's games. So Coda has a, a pile of games that they've made, and Beginner's Guide is you being guided by the creator of Stanley Parable through these games. And so they're showing you game after game and saying, Coda never wanted these games released was sending them to me and I thought they were so brilliant and there's this amazing trajectory through them, but they just keep them on their like uh, on their hard drives and not show them to anyone except a few close friends. But I just felt like these needed to be put out in the world. And I'm going to I'm going to spoil this, but I just think it's so cool. But basically um Julia who's who's a creator herself, like she she does drawing and also she was getting emotional while playing this game on stream and, and doing this because she's played it through many times. And just how much she says it connects to her own creative process and the types of toxicity people can have. So as you go through the game and you're watching through these levels, there's all these theories that the narrator is telling you about these games. 
like why they did this, why they did that, why there's lampposts at the end of each level now, or why some levels, when you pull the code down, you can see the level's actually way bigger, but was locked off. So the player can't actually make it. Or when you, you go up a staircase and it becomes infinite, so you can't actually reach, but the level goes on for another like huge amount after. So unless you break the code, you couldn't see further. Um, so he's like, oh, this this was all secrets that Coda wanted me to see and do all this stuff, right? And finally, he he gets to this one game and he said, I finally just had to show the world, had to show the world the stuff. And so he did like a server dump or whatever and, and showed it to tons of people and put these games out there. And Coda went into hiding for like eight months or something like this before putting out another game and sending an email directly to him instead of just to a friend group, directly to him saying like, you need to check out this game. So he gets into this game and the game is a series of messages to him, basically like um, saying that you were projecting onto me, Coda, that your own depression and your own things and saying that the reason I didn't want to put out my games is because I was depressed and I was afraid of judgment, but I was never afraid of those things. I was just, uh, I just wanted this to be my own private thing and you ruined that. And this is like a whole thing of like messages about like the, the, the falling apart of their relationship and their differences in creative process. And so by, by that point, Julia was like breaking down and being like, this is like so real. And, and she's like, I see myself in both characters, in both the, the two things. And what's so crazy, she doesn't mention um, because it is the, the narrator is the creator of Stanley Parable. So you think this this is, I found out later, and I didn't know this till the end of the stream, but that it, the game is entirely fake. There is no coda. The games are all made by the creator, but it's still a brilliant story that tells this kind of. Hmm. Yeah, definitely worth checking a stream out, worth, worth playing through the games, although I've spoiled basically the major <laughs> cool part of it. But I just, oh God, like I had a, I had a really intense moment watching that. I'm not sure what it was, but it just really got me into emotions about how people can project on each other what what they desire. And especially with creative work, I think so people put so much of their own lives in there that doing anything with someone else's creative work or like or critiquing or judging them for it is always a high pressure moment. And yeah, I, I definitely feel of that a bit in my own life. Very cool. But that's it. That's uh, that was it. Was a very short experience. It was only like a two-hour stream, but very cool. <laughs> you might hear my cat in the I background. Hear, I yeah, aw. I hear cat. Which one is it? I think it's Torment. Torment and Milo sound pretty similar, so I think it's Torment. But I think he wants in the room to hang out with me. But. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, you got anything else, uh, Jason? No. Um, no, I just watch a whole bunch of stuff while I'm at work. So I could talk about like dozens and dozens of things, but yeah, I'll. And nothing that stands out to you? No, nothing really. I mean, I, you know, I, I go, I have Amazon Prime, Crave, and Netflix and Crunchyroll. So I just go whatever kind of feels the moment. Um, if I'm working, I don't want to read subtitles. So I'll just throw on something stupid like uh, Tacoma FD or I'll throw on Family Guy or, you know, just something that's mm -hmm. just background noise here and there, but Lydia. Yeah. So I watched, I mean, this was a little while ago. It's been a while since we recorded, but I watched, um, the lie, which is from the welcome to the Blumhouse series of movies that they put out on mm -hmm. Amazon prime before Halloween. 
Mm-hmm. So I watched that one. It's got uh, Joey King in it. She was in, um, God, she was in that one show about uh, like Gypsy Rose Blanchard that, that was like a dramatization of the true crime with Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard. It was called The Act. Um, so if you've seen that, that's what she's from. It had Peter Sarsgaard in it as well. It reminded me a lot, and I, like I would, it's a Blumhouse movie, so they definitely marketed it as like, because it's the Welcome to the Blumhouse series, they marketed it as like a horror, a series of horror films, but I would probably put it more in a category of like a dramatic thriller. But it reminded me a lot of the Apple TV Plus series, uh, Defending Jacob. And it's it's basically about... Yeah, you've talked to me a bit about that before. Defending Jacob is awesome. Defending Jacob, yeah. Highly recommend Defending Jacob. It's really good. Um, and this is this is pretty good, too. I, I, I would say Defending Jacob is, is more compelling than The Lie. But this is, this is interesting. It's about a young girl who's a product of divorce. Uh, her father, played by Peter uh, Sarsgaard, has moved out. He lives downtown. He's in, like, a jam band. And he's dating one of the girls in his jam band who's quite a bit younger than he is and she's the joey king's character is like really into ballet but she's like craving affection and support from her parents so she lashes out and she hurts somebody like a, another like one of her friends so she 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 kills someone so the whole movie after Jeez. that point is about her parents essentially trying to cover up her crime and keep her from going to prison. So her parents, you know, come together to support her and to protect her. And that's, that's the whole thing. And the mom is a corporate lawyer who formerly was a police officer. So she understands the system and they're trying to find all of these ways to give her alibis, to throw suspicion on other people, all of these things to hide evidence. And it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's got like, we need to talk about Kevin vibes, defending Jacob vibes, that kind of thing. They use a lot of the like, low contrast kind of filter on it the same way they do in defending Jacob to make everything seem really cold. So everything's got a lot of like, Mm. sort of a blue filter, bluish filter over it to seem like, very distant and cold and, and tense. It's, it's okay. I think it suffers from the same the same problem that Blumhouse's other series Into the Dark does, which Into the Dark is is kind of just, it's a television series, but they're sort of like TV movies. Kind of like what Black yeah. Mirror does, where each episode will be like, you know, anywhere from 70 to 90 minutes. So it's basically a movie. And, and the concepts are always interesting in Into the Dark, but the execution isn't quite there like they're not fully fleshed out and i would say Mm -hmm. most of these um into the bloom house movies are i've watched two of the four and i would say most of them are are in that realm but the the other one i watched which if we have time i'll talk about as well was really excellent (laughs) cool sure um i thought we should for sure at least get this one in and i'll be it for me at least which is bly manor which we've been meaning to talk about yeah. forever. You finished it? Yes, I did. Jason, did you watch it? No, not yeah. yet. I saw Haunting of Hill House a long time ago. Oh, and then so, oh. for Blind Manor, my brother has recommended it to me several times. I'm like, I'll get to it soon um, to my list of things to watch. I think Sarah would want to watch that one as well. So I'll probably just hop on and 
Now, now Joseph is like, I don't know if we can well, talk about it. No, because yeah, spoil. Oh, yeah, I don't care like, for spoilers. I like, I mean, there are certain things where I care for spoilers. For example, like anything that's Marvel related or anything that's like a video game that I'm really into. So go ahead, you can spoil as much as you as much as you want. I don't mind. I don't know. I feel like spoiling this kind of would ruin the entire experience. Uh, well, I don't think we'll we'll see. I don't think we'll have to spoil. Uh, major parts of it. I think most of it is hideable and still. Yeah. Just it depends what it depends what you think is important in it, but uh, well, so yeah. What did you think? I mean, I loved it. I I I liked. I think I liked Hill House more. I think I found the characters in Hill House more. I guess endearing, in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I was able to connect with them on on sort of a deeper level than I did in Bly Manor. But I still like overall really enjoyed it. I mean, it's. It's turn of yeah. the screw. It's you know the others, the innocence, all like those movies came before this, and and it's a very similar vibe to those. So it worked well for me. Yeah, I I feel the exact same way. Like I I like it a little bit less than Hill House. It's not just that I I like the characters more, or that I did connect with the characters more, but it's that the structure of it is so clear. Mm-hmm. Like once you get yeah. into it, it's such clear. Like we're gonna go into each character's story. They each have a trauma, which is connected to the ghosts at the house. Yeah. And that is going to culminate in some way. Blind Manor is a little more, a lot of moving pieces every single episode. And there is clear revelations each episode, but it isn't, you know, you're not going to guess like what's going to go on by the end because it really moves. So yeah, (laughs) what I really want to, say about it though is so there's there's some gay aspects to it right and so by the end i won't say what happens but by the end of it i was upset at the last the last episode is what took it down from being like an eight point it's it didn't even take it down that much like now looking back but at the time i was very dissatisfied with the last episode i really liked overall the second last episode but the last episode, basically, is a very, very long, in my view, epilogue, mm-hmm. which they took to be a very important part of the story. But I, And I thought it was very cute, but I was not expecting it. And because I wasn't expecting it, I was just like, ugh, this just feels like super long. But my roommate was with me and he was like crying by the end, which he like never does. So he loved it. Okay. So there's definitely different reactions to it. But I was just like, this feels corny to me. <laughs> I agree that that felt corny. I mean, I, like, I understand why they did it because in 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 the way that Hill House is about shared trauma, Bly Manor is about shared grief and the way people cope hmm. with grief and what grief and loss creates around them. Um, so I understand why they they had that sort of epilogue that kind of closed the loop on everything but uh, i i mean i do feel like it could have just ended when they when they left the manor you know like once you lose that setting it's like i don't this is meh. yeah it, i also realized like i have like such a problem with like toxic relationships or very lust-based relationships because the relationship i was most fascinated by in the show was the most toxic one between one of the housekeepers and a, a guy in it just right and like they're super was like the, toxic relationship like the, um, house the previous housekeeper no she was then, she wasn't the, or, the au pair um, the au pair yeah the and au pair. peter 
Yeah, and I was, and I was, I actually felt like there was some. I mean, it was toxic, obviously, but I felt there was some vibe. Whereas the other relationships, I honestly was like, these are just people who are friendly. Like, I don't. It just didn't, you know. And maybe so, maybe I have a bad relationship. But I just don't. I I struggle with friendships that feel like or relationships that feel like friendships. Like I don't. I I need a bit of spice in my relationships to be excited about them or something. I don't know. I mean, you might want to evaluate that about yourself a little bit. <laughs> uh, I mean, people get in trouble for the other side too, where no, they're like, yeah. "That's a friendship and not a not a relationship." Don't think that because you're being someone's being friendly to you that they like you that way. So it can go both ways. I mean, yes, yeah. All right, fair enough. But yeah, I I mean, yeah, really solid show. I guess I guess in the end, I'd have to say it didn't it didn't have quite the same magic for me as as uh, Hill House did. Also, how terrible is Carla Gugino's accent? She played the the old for the the narrator. Oh, um, I I didn't notice it so much. It was so definitely, bad. yeah, it, it was, was definitely so an accent. Well, yeah, because she's supposed to like you know the guy who played the dad in the origin in the in Hill House. His accent switch was really sounded pretty good to me, but like was yeah intense. his his didn't bother me, but her trying to do that fucking cockney accent oh man that did not work for me <laughs> all right any last minute ones before we head into the movie did you know i'll save sorry did sorry uh sorry lydia did you see uh monsterland yet no i haven't watched it yet okay uh joseph monsterland no i don't even know what that is okay it's a let's go very quick into it i there was so Lydia, you're a huge fan of horror, right? So this yeah. show, um, I enjoy horror here and there, right? So I, there's a show on Crave that was called Monsterland, and I wanted to give it a quick shot. And I think it's only like six episodes or something. Essentially, it's non-chronological. It's like every episode's a different theme going on. Sorry, I guess go back to the beginning. What it is about is every episode's different, and it has a scenario. It has like a... They're about an hour long each, and it's about some sort of, like, I guess you would call it, like, monster or a scenario that is kind of, like, deeply disturbing. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to spoil the first episode. So the first episode has the main character from Orange is the New Black, uh, Piper, and she is in a, a relationship with another girl, and it it's a very toxic relationship. And there's a lot of, like, bipolar disorder kind of going on around the whole thing. And it kind of skips around the entire episode. Well, it, you find to find out that um, Piper's character actually drowns in a bathtub. And all of a sudden gets up and acts like nothing's different. Um, and as the other girl in the relationship is, um, is, like, kind of trying to fix the relationship... Piper's character actually starts to deteriorate. Like, she actually becomes, like, zombie. Like, her eye falls out, and she starts falling apart, like, physically falling apart. And it's it's this whole kind of, like, weird show where every episode has something that's related to it, kind of, in a sense, but at the same time, it's also very strange. And I kind of liked and both hated the kind of series because... The episodes were hard to explain. I would say give it a watch if you wanted to really try it out and give me your opinion on it later. Because it was one of those shows where I thought it felt not rushed, but a little bit too avant-garde for me. A little bit. Like, it's hmm. 
like there was parts of it that didn't really quite make sense why they added in and the other parts where the monster I guess monster in quotations like didn't have much of an impact as it should have there, of course there is one scene in one episode that is the most disturbing scene like I actually cringed a lot with it so it did have a really good effect in doing that but I'll, I'll give hmm. like Lydia if you want to take a look at it I would definitely say like give it you know, an episode or two, find out which one kind of works, but see how you like it. So, I mean, you're not really selling me on it, but I'll check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll check right. it out for my need for horror. But yeah, I mean, it's an anthology series, right? So every episode is like different characters, mm-hmm. different story, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That's pretty much it for me. Okay. I guess I'll uh, introduce the. Actually, yeah. J- uh, Jason, why don't you introduce the movie and why you chose it okay. for this week. Sure, absolutely. So the movie was called The Sunset Limited, and it's a 2011 film, and it features just two characters, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson, in a room in New York City. Um, and the entire... It's based off of a play from, what you say, John McCarthy? Cormac McCarthy. Cormac McCar- yeah. McCarthy, sorry. Uh, the, I guess the writer of No, Con- no Country for Old Men. Yeah, yeah, and the road. And the road. And there's another one that he had recently too. I looked it up, but I can't remember what it is. Anyways, so it's them talking in a room and the entire conversation bounces between different kind of topics. And the, the whole story boils down to Tommy Lee Jones was about to commit suicide by jumping in front of the Sunset Limited, which is a train. And the character Samuel L. Jackson saves him and brings him back to his apartment. Uh, and they start talking anything between food, religion, theology, and uh, of course, well, not of course, but Tommy Lee Jones's character is a professor. Uh, I don't know of what. I can't Philosophy. remember. Philosophy. And so the whole conversation revolves around... Uh, darkness. Yeah, about darkness and everything around, you know, suicide and belief. So I found it very intriguing. Um, it's one of those kind of movies that you, you know, you have to really listen to because the words they say are very important. And wait, there's basically nothing else in the in the movie. It's yeah, just well, dialogue. yeah, nothing else. Like they have, like they wander around. The I'm room. just sitting there watching the stovetop. Yeah, right. Like there's pay attention to anything else. Like a lot, not not a whole lot of action, right? Like they gets up, he makes food, um, they make coffee, uh, goes to the washroom. They sit on the couch. They move from the table in the center of the room to the couch to looking out the window. Like there's they're they're you know playing with the Bible kind of describe the entire plot. Yeah, in a boat, right. You're, not the plot, not the plot. The blocking. He's yeah. just describing the blocking. <laughs> yeah. So that's 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 the whole scene for you. Yeah. And. There's a lot to kind of break down of this. And I have a couple of theories of what the actual movie is about. You can take the literal sense, right? Yeah. Uh, you can take the literal sense that there is a man saving another man. And then they're just talking about, you know, convincing him not to... Uh, I see you smirking. Um, the, uh, which, which one of us? <laughs> you. Um, so the... <laughs> The literal sense where there's another man saying another man, and then, like, they're just talking about, like, you know, not going to commit suicide. You can also take that the fact that the room is limbo. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. one of my other theories. Is the room is limbo, and, um, let's say, yeah, so the character's name is black and white. Tommy Lee Jones is white, and Samuel L. Jackson is black. 
Um, at least that's what their character names are in IMDb is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you think that like the room is limbo and Samuel L. Jackson's actually an angel. And he's actually kind of convinced Tommy Lee Jones that, you know, the attempt of suicide is, was, you know, was a bad thing. And there's so much to live for and all of that. And there's these little tiny tidbits in the conversations that kind of lead it in kind of one way. And the room being limbo is Tommy Lee Jones was hit by the train and he's in, in like, you know, that state of life or death, whether he chooses death is when he leaves the door or whether he wants to keep talking and then he'll get through it eventually. But you don't know, like there's never any kind of clues as to like what the actual meaning is or the whole thing. I have another theory behind this too, but I want to get your guys' opinions first. Well, yeah. So I, I liked it. I do think it really suffers from being a play made into a movie. There's just this, you know, it feels weird to have a movie in which like so little of the fact that it's a movie matters. Like really this could have been a podcast or, you know, some other uh, type of thing. They don't, they don't use the visual medium very well. And we had the actual conversation that's happening, you know, it's, I have so, I have so many things to talk about. So I'll let Lydia, why don't you state your, your basic case first and then I'll go more. I look, okay. I, this is obviously was not a movie for me, but which is fine. It's, I mean, look, it's a character study. That's all it is. Like, there's literally nothing else that matters in the room besides these two characters. What they're doing is superfluous. It doesn't matter if they're sitting on the couch or at the table or if they're making coffee or eating food. It's all irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the conversation between these two characters. I think what makes it, what would make it work as a stage play and what makes it suffer as a film is, like, you can do something like this as a film But when you know absolutely nothing about the characters, it is impossible to, like, really give a shit about them. Mm. So, like, as a movie, if you're doing a character study, your audience has to at least care about the characters to sit through 90 minutes of insufferable conversation. (laughs) And I just didn't give a shit about them. So, like, that was incredibly frustrating like Tommy Lee Jones is sitting there like Eeyore lamenting the fact that he's alive because the world is going to shit and it's like man the world's been going to shit since its inception you're not saying anything new or interesting here you've just decided that anything that comes after this point is going to be worthless Mm -hmm. so you might as well be dead like you're enlightened because the world is only getting worse from here it's like the world was getting worse for before you were born deal with it it's so like, I don't know, that was frustrating. I'm I'm personally not that into stuff that centers around religion. That's just me personally. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just, I don't find it compelling. So like the fact that the entire thing was like philosophy specific intellect versus r- religious ideology. It's like n- nothing about that was an interesting conversation to me. <laughs> I don't know, man. It was long winded. It was long-winded. I'm not saying there's nothing of value in it. If you're interested yeah. in philosophy, I think it's 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 interesting to listen to them speak. But it's it's very like Gilmore Girls kind of conversation where it just even though they're older gentlemen, mm-hmm. it feels like far and away the type of intellectual conversation that any real person would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's not a normal conversation that they have between each other. There's lots of like you mentioned before run off run on sentences. And very, like, quick replies back and forth to each other. And that's, I guess that's why it works well as a play, but not as a movie. 
Yeah, I mean that's Cormac McCarthy style. Like he his his books are very dialogue heavy and they're full of run on sentences and lack of punctuation. Which I mean, I, that's why I can't read his shit. But I I also understand the appeal of it because it's like heavy dialogue. Like having just conversations between characters can be interesting. But in this format, I found it very frustrating. Makes sense. So the the basic thing for me is that. Yes, it is. Samuel Jackson's character is religious and represents the side of religion. But I think more broadly, what they're supposed to represent is nihilism versus feeling that there's some reason to live. Mm-hmm. Fe- feeling like there's some meaning in the world. And it is very clear that the the way in which Cormac McCarthy thinks about this, and this is clear in his other works too, ends up with this religious undertone. And I think this is true in you know, the, the Americanism that he's sort of has come to represent. Because uh, the road is a very similar idea in that it's a post-apocalyptic world in which people are just nihilistic survivalists. And that's all that's left. But it's the love of a father for his boy that keeps them going, even though the father ends up having to do heinous things to keep them alive. And it's this pro- this this constant problem that if you see the world and you see how depraved it is or the line in the movie a a a moral leper colony colony yeah yeah uh like that's if that's your view of the world and it's an inevitable march of bad things what what if if you're that deep in nihilism like it's the need feels like you need something at the level of religious faith to come back from that you need Mm -hmm. something that feels that stable and that eternal I don't think that necessarily means it's God. That's how the movie portrays it. I understand that. But I, I think the the question it's really posing is everyone... and Well, even Samuel Jackson's character says this. In, for some people, it's drinking. For some people, it's this thing or that thing. They find something that keeps them grounded in the world mm-hmm. for another day or for another thing. Keeps them out of nihilism. Of course, he admits that drinking is a terrible one. You're going to die from it. And they might even know that. So he's asked this question over and over. It's like, what is it that they really want? And and it's that that ground, that mm-hmm. stability that's asked for it. And God is the highest, but also in a way most contradictory point. Like only a person can hear them, only if you're listening, only if you sort of have faith and and, and do that. And that's the that's the way out of the nihilistic dilemma. Basically, to have faith in something to mm-hmm. uh, to, to get yourself out. And I actually think. The beginning conversation about the Bible really caught me right away because it, it's a good point that, you know, I haven't read through the Bible. I've read, uh, like like the like um, Tommy Lee Jones' character says, I've read parts of it. I know generally what people say about it, but I've never w- read it through. And yet I've read, like his character also, many, many books over the course of my life and think many of them are great. But could I argue that they're better than the Bible? Probably not. And yet I, I refuse to read the Bible. And so you never read the Bible. Covered we went to Catholic now. school. Yeah, me neither. They didn't. They made me read you it. You really have I, to read the Bible in Catholic school. <laughs> shit, they made us read it when I was in fucking elementary school. I read that shit cover to cover, and they made us read the fucking Cataclysm. You guys went to way easier schools than I did. This is bullshit. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I I'm not religious in the least. I'm not religious either. Like, I'm salty that I got like the more <laughs> intense religious education. Yeah, we all lived in the same city. This is yeah. No, I was. I never was. Never. I was never forced to read the Bible. I never. You picked it up unless I was reading. You know, some little part of it while in church or whatever. Just 
out of pure boredom, you know, just, and then, of course, I would stop halfway because it didn't make any sense to me. I'm, I'm not into religion as much, right? So, yeah, this movie was very interesting about having that religion. Like, they came back to religion quite a few times, and especially just the Catholic religion or Christian religion, just with, you know, God and Jesus and all of that. And there was a lot to unravel and how, like, there was, like, is this, is this a good book? Is this the, this is the best book ever written? And it's always, you know, with someone's opinion versus not. And you can kind of tell that Tommy Lee Jones is not the religious type because he's, I guess he claims himself as the intellect, right? Or a smarter intellect in, like, in the movie. Well, who, yeah. I mean, uh, like, in on, this case, on yeah. the whole, yeah. in this case, yeah. On the whole, I think, I think the, uh, like, the stereotype is that intellectual people scoff at the religious folk and only the like mediocre believe in religion and i don't think that's true i mean you have doctors and lawyers and scientists that all have faith in something or believe in some kind of a religion or grew up in a religion or whatever like that (laughs) there's a lot of differences there i think like i think in something like philosophy using philosophy though using like a philosophy professor to be sort of the counterpoint to the religious character was a good choice in that like philosophy is all about questioning your existence, why you're here, how, why the world is, how things work, that kind of thing. And religion is a very like, there are questions within religion, but there's a basic structure that tells you like how the world works, how you should exist in it and what your end goal should be. So there is sort of like an ideological disconnect there that makes for a more interesting conversation. So we did get that out of it. Like it is, and like the level of exhaustion that Tommy Lee Jones's character has in regards to having this conversation because he believes he has all the answers and all the answers are bad mm-hmm. um, rings very true for something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and certainly in, in actual philosophy classes, there's often a nihilist in the back of the room sort of snarking at everything. So it isn't an uncommon thing. I think... Most of them aren't in this state, and no professor I've seen is in this state of extreme misanthropic depression. Like he, Tom Lee characters despises all other human beings. Yeah. But that, that is what, you know, that is what they're trying to, well, it is, I say that's what they're trying to do, but I feel like Samuel Jackson's character on the other hand is actually quite multidimensional and doesn't, like, he's clearly not just an angel. Like he is wild. Samuel L. Jackson's character has like a lot more fluidity to him. Like he's not he he's he's not posing himself as a moral good. He no. he sh- like explains his background, shows his character growth, explains why he came to religion, all of these things that like show change and growth and connection. Whereas yeah. Tommy Lee Jones's character is just like the world is awful. Everyone is stupid. And I am too enlightened to exist with these plebs. And it's like, okay. I guess Samuel Jackson's character, in a way, I would say almost represents pure redemption. He is an unbelievably awful person who is now trying to redeem themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And sort of has a pure form of that in that was really, really bad. And now is trying to do good in... Not an intellectual way, but just a, a an effort, a daily effort to do good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, it's it's an interesting character. Mm-hmm. 
there's also a lot of like topics that were also involved in the, the sh- in the movie as well that they went through like religion, family, food, money, other like other people's mm-hmm. consideration. And it leads me to one of my other like theories behind this whole thing is that what if this wasn't like what if this was a conversation in his head whether he wanted to jump the tracks or not? Right. Like yeah. what what if it was like yeah. he saw he saw the saw a man and he interpreted that person as 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 black, I was gonna say from the character. And then he's having conversation in his head with this other character about whether he should jump on the tracks. And what one of the reasons yeah. You kind of get this feeling is because there's several times in the movie where where uh, where White wants to leave, he wants to go, and that means he's made this, his decision to step onto the tracks to you know end his life, and then he has all these other topics in his head like religion and family. He's like, there's no one I left to have for family, uh, money. He's like, oh, I have money, I can just throw away. Here, how how much do I owe you? I'll give you a thousand. I'll give you three thousand. It's like the, having money is not an objection for him anymore. He just wants to. He wants to go. And then there's yeah. other people's consideration. Like, oh, people who are going to be late for the next train. Do I jump because I care for them? And by the end of it, um, as we know, he wants to leave after a very dark monologue about how he views the world, which made, you know, Black kind of break down almost in tears. Uh, he's like, I yeah. want to leave. And then you kind of get... Which I felt was a bit false and forced in the actual acting of yeah. it. Tom Lee Jones's speech was really over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if you're not compelled by it, it feels a bit, yeah. Yeah, but, but so that sure. was his final... I understand theoretically. Yeah, was it, his, it makes sense to your theory. Yeah, it was final build-up, and then you get to the door. The door is one of the, the main kind of signs in this whole thing. It's like he has... There's two things with the door. The first one with all the padlocks. It's like that final decision to make that step, right? You have to go through all of the different ways of thinking... And you have to unlock all of those things. And then if you're only true, like, you know, motivation is to get out, you will leave after all those doors or all those locks are unlocked. So that's, I guess that's the point where that's where he would step off. And that's when he, when he leaves the room, that's when I think he, he decided that he was going to jump. Um, The other thing that I was going to say as well is, is in the, in the movie at one point, Samuel L. Jackson mentions that he's, He's looking to buy a stronger door, and which could have been a sign that in White's brain or in White's head, there was, you know, may- oh, maybe yeah. a moment in where he wanted to reinforce that kind of reinforce the way out as the final decision, but he never really got around to it, you know? Yeah, so that's one way to kind of put it. And again, like other, like food, for example, like he tasted the food that uh, that Black made. And it was like, okay, well, like, is food enough of a reason to stick around? And it's like, no, clearly it wasn't. Uh, family, there's well, no I one think, left, you know? I think the food stuff, like, the door is obviously the obstacle, and in your theory, Samuel L. Jackson's character would be something like his conscience. Mm-hmm. But the conversations that they're having outside of, like, philosophy versus religion or academia, intellect versus religion... Outside of that conversation specifically, a lot of what they're talking about is specifically related to, like, social status and class, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, like when they're talking about food, Samuel L. Jackson is mm-hmm. specifically talking about innovation created by impoverished groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so his food is directly influenced by 
the poor community that he lives in and the like immigrants and people of color in the neighborhood that he exists in. So what Tommy Lee Jones is saying, like in relation to your theory, in my mind, what Tommy Lee Jones is saying about the food being really delicious, he's talking about the value of these different types of people that he never interacts with. And if it is truly a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, his his love of culture. He was, he, you know, he picked War and Peace as perhaps the best book, and he he clearly has his view yes. of like the best cultures are this history of Western civilization, which would not include the food made exactly. on Twenty Fourth Street. Yeah, it's 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 he has an elitist outlook yeah. on what the apex of cultural innovation could be, right? So he's he's only paying attention to what is like high class, high social status, typically like white culture, because that's what Mm -hmm. you see in like high end universities. And he's using this moment to learn about the cultures that exist in these different areas outside of his echo chamber and the value that they can hold to the world and its cultural evolution if academics like him or people of higher social status like him pay attention to it. So like when he's saying the world is lost culturally, he's only talking about this minute world that he exists within. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like an eye-opening experience that he's not grasping onto. I think it's for sure connected to, you know, Cormac McCarthy's in his own mind, writing this play and what, like, him just putting out as a dialogue instead of a monologue, his own thoughts and concerns. And you can definitely see this in No Country for Old Men in certain speeches characters make there and the actual output. Like, in that movie, the serial killer for him represents and is matched up in this in this talk by some other characters with the rioting and liberalness of the cultural left, which these characters could not understand. Cormac McCarthy seems to make an equation between the depths of terrifyingness at the frontiers of civilization. You know, he has like Islamophobia or, but even in his Westerns, he'll often show how both the Native American peoples and the Americans doing it are both depraved in their ways at which conflict at the frontier happens. And I think he sees that today with the, with the left where there's this fear that yes they can make progress but they do so in extremely violent upending ways in this case though i think he's much well is he much more polite about it or is he still terrified of it right samuel jackson's character is both terrifying and and horrendous and the leper colony that surrounds him in new york city um, and in this apartment building, he's like, it's character. The white character says over and over again how disgusting and how could you live in this in this type of environment? Um, and I think that's for him what modern society is like without all these high cultural things mm-hmm. um, that have lost meaning for him. But at the same time, it's you know it's God or it's some kind of it's some kind of connection to these things. So I think the food actually represents a kind of other avenue besides just God as a way out. He says it's very good. And it is established in this new cultural way. And so I wonder if the movie has more hidden sort of possibilities like that, other than God, as ways out of nihilism. 
I think there is. I think if you, again, if you watch this movie one more time, I think there is a lot of deeper meaning behind a lot of things that are said or mentioned or even like the coffee. He looks into the coffee at one point and right. like he only sees it's it's black, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't have with sugar or milk or anything. So it's like, it's like all, all, I guess all the subtle small actions you can kind of see that are done or all the small things that are said in the whole movie can be interpreted a bunch of different ways. And like I said, my theories of the whole thing of being a limbo or he's, um, or whether it's actually a literal conversation between the two or whether it's a conversation in just his head or whatever it might be, there's a, you know, it could be a bunch of different ways you can interpret it. And then everything that is done, um, the actions while they're in the room actually kind of matter. Like sitting on the couch, being in a more relaxed position could also be hmm. a way of like, okay, am I, am I talking about this more in a relaxed way or am I like sitting at the table where I'm more high stress, like I'm more concentrated yeah. on this piece of information and they, they, um, they go back and forth. So if you, you can interpret it as ma- in many ways as you would like it to be interpreted. No, as I say, it all boils down to like, I guess the final decision of like whether he wants to, like he, him leaving, right? The whole thing of, should I have a cup of coffee or commit suicide? Well, yeah. Some, it's a quote from someone, I forget who though. Yeah, but like, if you, you know, it all boils down to him whether he wants to decide to do it. And then I guess the whole room is obviously that conversation of whether he needs to or not. So. Yeah, that's why I found it more intriguing, this, this film. It's definitely not for everyone. Obviously, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone um, who's more into like Marvel films or like horror. This okay. is this is like you know this is completely uh, like different from anything else. And of course, like Sarah won't watch this. Of course, she won't. Like it's not it's not in her not in her um, interest to watch this kind of film. I was just going to say, I think in relation to like Jason's point about how they're sitting and where they're sitting near the beginning of the film. You know, they start at the at the dining table in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and about a quarter a third of the way in they moved to the couch for the first time the very first time and i don't know why this stuck in my head but the very first time they moved to the couch samuel l jackson sits in the armchair and tommy lee jones lies down on the couch the way that you would on a therapist's couch in like an old movie and monologues on that couch and it's basically just one or two word sentences from Samuel L. Jackson prompting him to continue the monologue about how he feels and it did very much feel like they had moved or shift into a different kind of conversation with each other where it was more of this sort of therapy session yeah where it was get out all of these negative emotions and then we can start building a new foundation and unfortunately you see the moment where tommy lee jones kind of shirks out of that he's like no i'm not we're not doing this he sits upright and they go back into the sort of terse and tense interaction that they had been having at the dining table so i think that's kind of an interesting note yeah when they're at the couch, Tommy Lee Jones is more receptive. Or when they're standing, he's more receptive. When they're sitting at that dining table, he's more challenging. Yeah. He is more drawn away. He's He pushes back more aggressively. Yeah, and I wonder if, because the, the window is opposite the door and right by the couch. And so I wonder if there is this, like, the window is towards life and freedom and the doors towards death um if there is well, a especially because the room. this whole movie goes 
from nighttime to daytime, right? Because it's the sunset limited that he was trying to jump in front of, which gives you sort of an indication that it's an evening train. Yeah. And by the end of the film, you see the sunrise coming up outside of the window. And you you slowly, slowly turn to more and more light coming in through that window. But by the time the sun is actually over the buildings, Tommy Lee Jones is out the door. So he misses this moment of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Very good point. So my own, like, I like Cormac McCarthy stuff. Um, I do think it's a, it's a very conservative old style of thinking, um, especially in the way he posits the dichotomy between, you know, like sort of God and nihilism and whatnot. And I think I'm curious as if you guys have any ideas or examples of other stuff where there might be a more modern or postmodern take on this that feels more relevant to you. Because none of us are really religious and stuff like that. So like what, you know, I think we're all somewhat aware of nihilism out there or or feelings of nihilism Mm. but the question is what is it that inspires us in our own sort of internal dialogues towards another side and i actually i actually i mean i have tons of philosophy answers to this but i i struggle to think of a clear religion is such a clear example of that other side yeah and so Mm -hmm. it's harder i think for you know someone who's progressive minded post post postmodern today contemporary to to land on that same kind of religious principle but we're clearly not nihilistic either. So it's it's interesting um, where we're at as a society yeah. today. Yeah. No, I don't disagree with you. I just, I, I get frustrated with films or, or plays or books like this where it's like, I, I and I don't know if this was the intention, but at least with the movie, it feels very much like they're putting intellect into this like negative space where it's like if you right. get too much yeah. intelligence, like you're gonna hate yourself and you're Which gonna hate totally your existence. False. Well, not totally, yes, but it's like exactly. it's it's not it's, it's not clear that false. those are totally connected. So that so that I found kind of frustrating. There's like a weird anti-intellectual tilt to this. That's like you if you're smart, you're gonna want to kill yourself. But if you're like you know mediocre and religious you're gonna love oh, life yeah. it's like that's that's no but i'm not saying yeah. that that's good no, for no, no, either I one i think saying. that's i think that's a negative portrayal of religious people even though you know samuel l jackson's character isn't unintelligent it's it's putting intelligence in this box where it's like it's only a bad thing if you're really smart and you can you can only be so smart and religious and it's like neither of those things are true so the message is sort of lost on me. I think there are interesting facets to the conversation. I think they do interesting things with it. But I have trouble connecting to a message where it's like, intelligence bad. For sure. And stupid people are religious. It's like, well, that's that's shitty to both both factions here. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of being an asshole to both options. And you're only giving two possibilities. I think one touch point that I think was good in the movie was this idea between doubting versus questioning. So we, mm-hmm. so Samuel Jackson accuses Tommy Lee Jones's character of being a doubter, but not a questioner and doubting as in like just making, emptying out everything of meaning and just thinking everything is pointless. And that, so just putting plain doubt on everything, everything is doubtful. Whereas a, a questioner is someone on the way towards an answer while still questioning like so when it's just like tommy Lee, tommy Lee jones asks him do you literally believe in the literal truth of the bible 
And he's like, well, no, I question it. I find original sin, for example, not, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think knowledge. And of course he picks the example of original sin because it's about whether getting knowledge is important to the religious person. And he says, yes, of course it is. Um, we have to deny that this is how it is, that, that eating the apple was a bad thing. We need knowledge. We need to do these things. But I think what is the point of this character is that effort and redemption are not intellectual things. They're things that are done on a daily basis and no answer is going to come on high to solve the problem for you. And no answer does come to Samuel L. Jackson. It's just effort that he has to put in each day to help people, to help the drug addicts that come through his door or the alcoholics or, in this case, Tommy Lee Jones. And so I, th- I think there is a nice message to that. I think the problem in that message is specifically the, like, no answer will come on high to solve your problem, when in fact, for Samuel L. Jackson, an answer did come on high to in solve some ways, his yes, problem. In some ways, yes, yes. <laughs> like, he he, ha- he still had to put effort in. He still had to actively work every day to care for his, like, fellow person. But ultimately, when he was at rock bottom, he got a literal yes. message from God. God actually spoke to him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you can't say that no message will come on high to solve the inherent problem within you. When you also told a story about how a message literally came to you from God that set your, like, solution in motion. I think, but I think he also said that it's about, you have to be ready to listen, was I think the idea there. So it's it's more important that he made himself available to the faith that there's something that is worth doing and not just living a nihilistic lifestyle. That's why I took it. Now, of course, I know I'm I'm picking a charitable reading, but that's what makes me feel interested in the case. I think that there is something to that, to this possibility of of listening and caring about one's own redemption, one's own possibility of making effort and making a journey. Because I don't think those are things that automatically come from an intellectual answer. There's no truth that comes out as an explicit intellectual truth that you can then, that you, in a certain way, you have to have faith that making the effort and being worthy of redemption are ways to continue living one's life. Does the movie fully portray it that way? I don't know. But, you know, it's a movie open to a lot of interpretations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I, I'm reminded constantly during this conversation, um, which, get ready for pretentious as hell, but of David Foster Wallace and his book Infinite Jest in which he struggles with a similar thing. He eventually committed uh, commit suicide, but in it, he the, the book is full, full of drug addicts and uh, geniuses that are nihilistic about the world and characters having dialogues about whether they should, you know, burn the whole world down type stuff. Like lots of these different dynamics that are all portrayed in different ways in this movie. And Dave Foster Wallace's own, both super intellectualized and brought down to earth, which... I think the ways he brings it down to earth are more postmodern than Cormac McCarthy's in that, for example, uh, one of the characters is a drug addict who is dealing with AA or, or NA. And just the fact that what one needs to do is repeat these mantras and do these things. And when asked for further answers, it's like, there is no further answer. You just don't drink and follow the advice and you just do it every day. 
And I think that's a very, very hard answer for an in- for an intellectual because it it's not as though there's some giant pattern that interweaves perfectly into this image. It's just a you wake up and you do it and the habits just form in such a way that you're protected from your own worst instincts. And some that requires community, that requires things. Is the community good? No. In in the book itself, the community is full of people who, you know, are drug addicts and, and are willing to do bad things if they're having a bad day. Does that mean though that the, some of these people can't make it to the end? And I and I, I especially like about that. Even the older, the veterans who have made it 20, 30, 40 years sober are not living good lives. There's no rainbow at the end of the tunnel. They're, they just explain that they still wake up every day, have to say the mantras, and they have barely decent jobs, barely decent things, but they're like, but I'm not dead. And I think mm-hmm. that's an extremely hard answer to give because it feels like, well, then where, what's the point? Where's the dream? Where's the rainbow? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's it's tough. So I think there's something still tragic and, you know, I mean, maybe it's not helpful at all since in the end he did commit suicide like many uh, great writers and whatnot. So who knows? But it's it's interesting to, to ask the question and to make the, the effort. That's my, my little take on that book that people have stopped talking about for like seven years. Cool. What were you saying, Jason, about when you first watched this movie? Like, was it with other people, or...? No, I just watched it alone, actually. Uh, I, again, I downloaded a whole bunch of movies for Torrance, and this one came up as, like, oh, high volume. And I was like, you know what? I might as well just download as many of these as pos- I possibly could. And then when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, what is this one? So I put it on, and it was just one of those ones that just... It kind of stuck with me. And it stuck with me for the last, mm. what, nine years? Um, it's just one of those ones where it's just, it was just such a big, like an interesting conversation between two people in the same room that makes you question both religion and, you know, suicidal tendencies and all of that. And of course, I'm not suicidal. Um, but for those who may struggle with it, this, you know, is very interesting take on the whole thing. So do you feel like it, like it hit you at the right time or, or like it really affects you? Or is it more that it just stuck you in a, it's a unique movie kind of way a little bit of both um unique movie that like i've never seen a movie done before like this way i again like i said i used to watch uh plays with my grandparents up in a small town and the production value were you know very small and very low and those are very interesting sitting in front of a play um in this one like just the the theme of it being in the same room like one room two actors like very very low budget like like what was the, what do you think the budget of that film was couple thousand at most yeah besides the the actors themselves yeah besides the actors and the coffee and everything like that i mean like it's the coffee yeah that's the big yeah and then the furniture and all that like the movie's probably nothing like pennies right so like that alone was also intriguing because you can do so so much impact with what's such a low budget that it was just it was intriguing and then when the conversations they started having i know the conversations are normal from like a normal between you and I, right? Like they'd be very different structure. Um, but the fact that like the conversation, like the topics of the, of the conversations were very, I guess they must've hit home at the time too, where like mm-hmm. maybe I was a little depressed uh, living in the, um, living in Oshawa, like not alone. I had roommates, but like if they were asleep, you know, I was, I was there in my room alone, you know, watching TV, it's kind of maybe, 
I wasn't in any kind of relationship at the time either. So maybe it was like just the lonely feeling of yeah. that. It might have been like, okay, well, this, the conversation they had in the movie were kind of like impactful. And I guess I must have had like came out of a nap or something because when I was watching the movie, I didn't feel tired at all. Like I was like very, very invested in the conversation they were having and then me trying to interpret what they were actually doing. It took like a, a while to kind of figure out what my own conclusion was. And I think at the time I thought it was limbo, like literally limbo. Like, do I, do I walk into the light or do I walk into darkness? And mm-hmm. it was very intriguing to me. Like, oh, that's like, you see these two actors on screen, but you don't know exactly what the scenario is. And of course you hear the trumpet playing outside and you hear the bus screeching and you hear the neighbors shouting at each other and all of that. And it's like, oh, it kind of brings you back into reality that this is literally two people talking in a room, but that could be anything. Right. It's all your interpretation of the whole thing. So it did make an impact when I was in, in school. Yeah. Yeah. For so sure. was... It really reminds me of like a dorm room movie where like people you'd watch it maybe one night and then like people would make the rounds talking about it. Mm-hmm. Obviously a certain type of person. Look, I literally is giving me the death glare, but. I'm not giving you a death glare. I'm just saying like that is not a dorm room movie. That's I'm just saying like that is a dorm room movie when you're like maybe a film student. But that's well, not a traditional thing. It depends what it means, movie. but I, I guess, I mean, like, there would be movies that were very weird B-movie type things. Like, I remember, like, Tokyo Gore, please, I forget what it was called, but, like, there's this type of movie where it was, like, this very specific kind of, like, Japanese horror gore type movies. Those made the rounds in our in our dorm where people, like, there's a sort of couple people who really, really loved them, so got everyone else to watch them. So I guess that's what I mean, like, these movies that you wouldn't hear about in the outside world, but kind of make a sort of inner circle because you have super fans in in the in your dorm is like mm-hmm. but i i went to i was in a computer science dorm so i definitely had like a very specific set of people who torrented japanese horror movies sort of <laughs> type yeah i was in video <laughs> game development so all of ours yeah. was spending late nights in the uh, the computer lab just working on whatever we wanted to do for like you know homework and then we'd throw on Tokyo Gore Police, or we to- we we put on like the the Star Wars Christmas music or movie, which was terrible and awful. And then we also put on like at one point I remember we were at like two a.m. and there's a YouTube video of Batman and Robin rolling over a piano, and we listened to that for twelve hours <laughs> of just insanity. I can't remember what the video is called, but it's just it was just. We sat there for at least for two hours listening to this whole thing. We're like, we need to shut this off. We're going insane. But yeah. Yeah, we didn't do that at my school. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? We, we just oh, got God. drunk. Yeah. The skeptic. No. Um, shoot, the anime and AMV Hell. Do you remember those, Jason? Did you ever get into those? I think so, yeah. That that was a huge one in my dorm. Everyone watched all the AMV Hells. Mm-hmm. You know, circa 2000. Too old. It's too old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Joseph's like, I don't want yeah, you no. to know how old I am. <laughs> but yeah, that, no, I had a good time watching the movie. I didn't have a good time watching Lydia Death Stare us the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But. I wasn't Death Staring the I whole time. I was watching the yeah, movie. I understand that. I, Lydia's recommended me some terrible things to watch. Jesus, too. you make. You make me sound oh, like an absolute God. piece of shit who can't understand something like no, moderately it's not intellectual. Understand. It's, like you're making me sound no, like a fucking it's not, idiot. I, 
look, I think the movie is exhausting to watch. I completely get that. It's you really have to be well, firstly you probably have to be like a white man <laughs> because that's very much the like sort of uh Cormac McCarthy feeling. But um the yeah, the movie itself is is a is a very specific kind of indie movie. Yeah, it's not a, like a late that night movie, one, and right. it's not one you can really watch with a lot of friends. Like if you have like a group of like a party, you don't That's throw true. this thing on during a party. This thing will bore the crap out of everyone, right? This is one of those ones where if you're sitting alone with a with a you know like a drink in your hand and you're kind of watching <laughs> it, you can kind of sure. get into it a little bit better. That's why. But it's a, it's a YouTube rabbit hole in a movie. Yeah, but. Next time you have, if you guys have me on again, uh, I'll do something a little bit more uh, actiony, <laughs> something a little bit more, uh, you know, yeah. better. Uh, Lydia's banned you. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Lydia's banned you. What? Yeah. No, you no banned me now, officially. <laughs> no, I think there is a movie that me and Lydia are planning on watching next weekend um, called The Long Shot. Um, she hasn't seen it yet, and I'm I'm interested in showing her that one because that's a. Charlize Theron movie and Seth Rogen and it's actually very underrated I think it's really it's a really great comedy film so we'll watch that one next weekend with everyone so okay I still have no real official outro thing but you can follow us on at fanlabspod at on twitter and or follow our individual um, twitter links which you can find and uh, yeah I think that's about it for today We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.